today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The U.S. and Mexico, as we told you yesterday, have reached an agreement on a deal. Uh, Donald Trump insists that it should not be called NAFTA anymore. Uh, Obviously, I don't know what concoction he's got in mind for this. But with that news, uh, Canada is now back at the table. Uh, Later today, Canada will join Mexico and the United States in Washington to try to hammer out a deal that uh, we say and, and are told now could happen as early as this Friday. Uh, is this a, a, a take-it-or-leave-it situation? Is there still some wiggle room to negotiate here? Are we just being told to sign on to the deal that Mexico and the U.S. already have? Lots of questions, not too many answers. We'll see what we can find out from Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. As he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Marvin, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Back from California, back from the dreaded land south of the border. Yeah, no, okay, so I you may be- have a few answers for you. You spent some time behind enemy lines. What kind of intel did you come up with? <laughs> Well, this announcement yesterday was actually supposed to have happened last Thursday. As you'll recall, for the better part of the last five weeks, Mexico and the United States were talking on issues that were really unique to them, but within the NAFTA framework. So God bless Donald. I know he he wants to give this deal with Mexico his own special name, but really what he wants to do is just come up with a new name for NAFTA to say, look at me, I destroyed that, and I got this better thing. Now, we are, should actually, as Canadians, be encouraged, encouraged by this agreement with Mexico because Mexico, during their talks, got the United States to move on a couple of issues that are very important to us. The first is the Sunset Clause. Donald Trump said this deal should only be five years. Well, look, it took us more than a year to get here. How can we do this in five years? So the Americans have compromised and said instead in five years we'll do a review And if the review then seems negative, well, then you can pull the trigger and the deal would expire five years after the review. Of course, uh, I'd like to see a little more language because if the review is positive, does that mean then we go another five years and it extends that way? Second thing that Mexico got was a bit of an American concession on dispute resolution. That's really important as well. We like the current dispute resolution mechanism, which says if any country has a problem, then three judges hear the dispute, one from each of the three affected countries, and they come up with a decision. Donald Trump's idea was to have any decision that involved the United States only be heard by American judges. Uh, Otherwise, the thing was fine. Well, apparently, Mexico's got them to move on that. And, of course, the big thing for the United States in talking to Mexico was some things around the auto sector. They didn't really affect us, and I'm sure we'll be happy with them. So... Today, Christia Freeland's returning early from Europe. She's going to Washington to try to hammer out the last few outstanding issues. They are not trivial. One of them clearly is supply management. Apparently, what the Americans have now said is Canada does not need to, does not need to dismantle Canada's supply management side for dairy and chicken, etc., except what they'd like to do is increase the quota that is on American product. In other words, they can allow more American product into Canada uh, without any duties or tariffs. And I think we'll be willing to talk about that because that's very similar to what we did with Europe and what we did with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's not an unreasonable thing for the United States to ask for. So we can have that chat. And the other, the other one, and this may be something that everyone listening to us will cheer about, uh, Donald Trump's group want us to change what's called the de minimis, the de minimis uh, amount for importation. Now, what does all that mean? Well, today, if I buy something from Amazon.com in the United States and try to bring it into Canada, and it has a value of $25 or more, I'm supposed to pay a duty on it. 
reverse situation, if I'm an American and I buy something in Canada by, uh, by the Internet, I can buy up to $800 before duties are applied. So all the United States has said is they'd like to see us increase our limit. Clearly, they'd like to take it up to $800. I don't know if we're quite that warm. But today at $25, I hate to say it like this, Bill, but what can you buy for $25? I think there's, again, room for Canada to move. And that's why I think we'll see this deal by August 31. And before I just hand it back to you, the last thing on that is that why America is pushing for August 31, they cannot ratify any deal signed on August 31 until after the midterm elections. But the current Mexican president is still in office until December 1st. So if we can get a deal on August 31, still under his administration, he will sign off. The new president, President Lopez Obrador, has said he'd be willing to sign off as well, but there's always the risk that when you change administrations, you have a new president who might run in a different direction, like uh, it seems to me there was an American president who started running in a different direction. Better to get it with the devil you know than the devil you don't. Well, exactly, Uh, which begs the question, if there seems to be some agreement, uh, and and again, we're, we're speculating here to a certain extent, though, Marvin, uh, why does it take so long? And, and uh, the, the stories we're starting to hear out of Washington right now is is the the exclusion uh, of Canada over the last couple of weeks uh, it was actually personal as it was as much as it was per- business. Uh, Donald Trump was ticked off at Christian Freeland and certainly Justin Trudeau because of what he said of the G7. But a speech that Christian Freeland made in New York when she accepted the award as the diplomat international diplomat of the year. And uh, she took the United States to task about their, their treatment of G7 partners and, and tariffs, etc. And, and apparently Trump didn't like that and basically said, well, you know, you're going to the penalty box. Yes. Well, that's, you know, that's Donald Trump. Now, good news here is that we're not negotiating with Donald Trump. So whatever personal vendettas he has and machinations are really, to me, just noise in the background. And I wouldn't pay much attention to them. Mr. Lighthizer is the one who's uh, in charge of this folder for of the United States, and he has nothing but good things to say about Christian Freeland. In fact, I think he is quite surprised. Uh, just to give you a simple example, Mr. Mr. Lighthizer stands about six foot six, and Christian Freeland stands about five foot. And when he met her, he thought, "Oh, I can bully this little girl into a corner, so so and so." And he's learned that she's a pit bull in these things, and I expect she'll still be a pit bull in these negotiations. You know, Donald Trump may say it's all about personal things, but it was also true that the United States, in these NAFTA negotiations, had some issues that were uniquely Mexican. For instance, they wanted Mexico to agree to raise their minimum wage. They wanted Mexico to do some things around the auto sector about uh, point of origin. They wanted Mexico to do something about their trade deficits, and they wanted Mexico to do something about immigration. None of those things affected Canada. So, in a way, you know, we could have sat at the table, but we'd be sitting quietly while the other two people talked about it, I, I'm not really overly worried that we were excluded for a few weeks. And if, in that process, Mexico was able to open some doors for us, all the better. Believe me, Bill, that while those negotiations were going on between the two parties, the third party, Canada, was still highly connected to both the Mexican negotiators and the American negotiators. There's nothing in this that's a surprise to us. So in your setup for this, you said, is this a take it or leave it? Well, I don't think we are going to go back and try to reopen what Mexico has already put together, because we like what Mexico's already put together. What we are going to talk about are those things now that are uniquely Canada's issues, and, and because there are so few of them now remaining, I think we can get the deal quickly. Uh, so we understand the timeline here, we get that, and, and I agree totally. I mean, we've got to just you know, forget about the bluster coming out of the White House these days, because that's, that's typical Trump. 
because the way he characterized it yesterday, as I'm sure you saw, Marvin, was, well, we're not sure if we're going to let Canada even sign this thing. But but he's he's not at the table. I mean, and there are some telltale signs that he's not at the table. For instance, uh, the deal with Mexico, there's no talk of a wall or paying for it, and that was something he was insistent upon. And and there seems to be some flexibility on the United States part on, on supply management. I never thought I'd see that happen. Yeah, so let me give you another example of Mr. Trump. So in, in the little... Uh, I don't know what you want to call it, interchange. I don't think it's a press conference exactly. His interchange with, with reporters, which are always testy, he said, well, you know, uh, this deal with Mexico is uh, so much more important than Canada. Canada's just kind of a minor player in all of this. In fact, our trade with the United States is bigger than Mexico's trade with the United States. So he, he doesn't really have a grasp of the day-to-day facts in all of this. Um, and so, you know, his his problem in the United States right now is his domestic agenda. As you know, there are and I saw this when I was in the United States, uh, investigations going in a hundred different directions. You've got people pleading guilty, people who are lawyers opening up boxes, uh, other documents circulating, Mueller circulating. So he needs to get you to look somewhere else. It's, it's called the art of distraction. So, oh, look at this bright, shiny object we just got over here. And he does want to claim a victory on this front. Um, and I think probably the other concession we can give Mr. Trump is, sure, we can come up with a new name for it. We don't have to call it NAFTA 2.0. We can call it whatever the heck you want, Donald, that will make you feel better. So then he can go out on the campaign trail and say, thank God I was president or we wouldn't have got this. But, but really, Bill, I have to tell you, uh, we've spent a year negotiating in all of this, and, and I'm not unhappy with what I'm hearing is in this new agreement. It was a modernization of the agreement. That is absolutely true. It opens up things in the Internet that weren't around 23 years ago. And we really haven't had to give up anything overly much. Uh, The biggest concessions, and that will happen in the next four days, will be around our dairy and poultry industry. But if we don't have to dismantle supply management, and instead it's just about letting a little more American product in, done appropriately, I think we can live with all this to then solidify this deal and make it safe for another 20 years. What about some of the other stuff that we've talked about that, that hasn't really made the headlines? And, and and one that jumps out here, I understand the intellectual property debate, and, and it looks like there's some compromise on that. But we haven't whole, had a whole lot of discussion about telecommunications, and I know that that was part of the discussion at the table. Yeah, and in that situation, I, again, I don't quite know where that one stands, but I, I believe the whole plan here was to allow uh, some American competitors to enter our market, and, and frankly... I think most of your listeners would welcome that. Uh, we have an oligopoly right now. In other words, we have just a small handful of big players, Bell, Rogers, Telus, and Shaw, uh, and there isn't as much competition, and therefore we pay some higher than many people feel, at least globally, uh, rates for things like the Internet and for cable television and for phones. Uh, so to have more competition, I don't think it's the end of the world. Now, the trick again is we aren't going to quite go from what we've got now to a free-for-all. Anybody can do anything at any time. So we've got to negotiate the limits around that. But America would consider that a victory if we open that up. And again, I think we're prepared to do that in exchange for some of the things that we want, say, again, around that dispute resolution mechanism. Well, yeah, and and listen, I'm sure the people around the board at Rogers uh, would be ticked off if that happened. But as consumers, that's a good deal. I mean, we've been crying for this, and I know Verizon has been knocking at the door at the border here for the last 15, 20 years saying, let us in. Uh, it, it'd be nice, and I think it'd be great for Canadian consumers to see something like that. Well, turn it the other way around. If, if I was on the Rogers board, and this is where this is going, what it says to Rogers is you've got to stop being a Canadian company. You have to start thinking about a global marketplace, much like Verizon says, well, 
we're going to expand into other markets. Our big banks got that message loud and clear. Sure, it's the Toronto Dominion Bank or the Bank of Montreal, but they have a huge presence in the United States. I see them all over in the United States. They're in the Caribbean. They're in parts of Europe. They, they have to. You have to become a global player. So the fact that they can't just have their little playground here in Canada anymore, I, I'm not crying crocodile tears for them. No, not at all. And, and the bank story is really a great success story when you talk about that. I think I mentioned to you last year, I had a discussion, I guess is the way to call it, with a, an American friend of mine that was talking about TD Ameritrade. And he says, no, it's a company from New York. I said, no, it's not. It's from Toronto. TD stands for Toronto Dominion. No, it doesn't. Uh, but they're there. And Royal Bank has a big foothold, of course, in the U.S. market. Uh, BMO does as well. Uh, why can't these guys? I mean, if Verizon can come over here, then maybe Rogers and Bell can say, well, let's maybe us uh, move out of our backyard and see what we can do. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, how, how Canadian banks were able to do this, they downplayed the fact they were Canadian by using their initials. Yeah. You're right. Your friend doesn't know TD stands for Toronto Dominion, BMO. Nobody knows it stands for Bank of Montreal, RBC, Royal Bank of Canada. So they were they found a kind of a sneaky way to to get into that market. And I'll just give you another quick example. Canadian Tire has been trying desperately to figure out a way to get into the United States. The problem is the name Canadian Tire is iconic to us, and we know that it's more than tires. We know what Canadian Tire is, but it's very very difficult to enter the United States with that kind of a name. So I've noticed recently that on some of their products, they're calling it Triangle. And I think that may be the approach they're going to take to get in the American market. And bravo to them. You know, it's a global marketplace. You cannot just focus in one place anymore. So are we all going to hug hands and, or hug, you know, hold hands and, and sing Kumbaya by the end of the week? Is this all going to work out? I, you know, Bill, I, I, I don't, I, you, you know me that I'm a glass half full kind of guy. Yeah. I, but I think there is a strong possibility not because we have made concessions, but the Americans have become flexible, and they seem to have bought into this concept that we needed right from the beginning of negotiation. It's not take it or leave it. This is our position. This is what we want. That's it. They seem to really be buying into this. And, and, and I think, Mr. Lighthizer, what has changed is he's really been given the marching order, get this wrapped up. I need to take this out this fall to those midterm elections. This is Trump speaking now. I need to take this out to these midterm elections to declare a victory. Uh, I don't want this thing just lingering around. And so it, with a change in the headwinds, I, I think it's quite possible we'll have something done. Uh, just again, remember, though, we aren't going to sign any deal just for the sake of a deal. And why Hamiltonians should be interested in this bill is that if we get this deal signed on Friday, by Friday, you know the next thing that should happen is that the steel and aluminum tariff. I was going to ask away. you about that. Yeah, I mean that that should actually just let, you know poof that should be gone. Well, whether it's whether it's the day after or two weeks after, but it should begin the process of removing them fairly quickly because once you sign it, this is now the new framework, and the new framework we've signed doesn't have tariffs and steel on it. So uh, even though Donald Trump may threaten uh, additional tariffs on autos to, I guess, get us to sign something or what have you, the reality is that he may have to give up on those tariffs that he's liked for the last few months. And what does that mean for Estelco and DeFasco? They haven't lost an awful lot of business in the last three months, but what they weren't able to do was sign contracts for delivery in 2019 and 2020 because people in the United States weren't sure what was going on. Many of their customers had already applied in Washington for exemptions for those tariffs, but they were still waiting to hear where that goes. If we can get this deal signed and we can make those tariffs go away, that's hugely great news for Canada. Marvin Ryder with the DeGroote School of Business. As always, Marvin, thanks so much for this, and welcome back. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
Somewhat of a surprise story that you uh, heard on CHML News this morning. Uh, an aquaponics cannabis producer has bought the Stony Creek Sports Complex. That's that huge complex, of course, uh, you can see on the QEW as you're driving uh, eastbound out of the city. Uh, and uh, caught a few people off guard, including a number of the people that use that uh, soccer facility. Uh, why this place and how did this come about? Well, to that end, we are pleased to welcome uh, the man behind the deal. Warren Bravo is the CEO of Green Relief Incorporated. And he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Warren, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, discuss this with you. Uh, did this come upon, uh, upon you very quickly? I kind of get the sense that this uh, deal was, was consummated and, and hatched uh, in, in pretty short order. It, it was, yes. Uh, we, we, uh, we were approached by a third party uh, that this building was for sale. Obviously, I don't think it was on the, uh, you know, the MLS listings. It wasn't out there. Uh, in the public uh, that the building was for sale, but somebody brought it to our attention, and uh, once we once we went to have a look at it, uh, we we did note that the the building was kind of uh, uh, perfectly set up for our uh, intended use, and and uh, yeah, the deal did close uh, relatively quickly. I believe we take uh, the space uh, for November first or the end of October uh, is when we officially. Uh, uh, take take uh, take the, the building itself. Now, we, for those who may not know, your your company, Green Relief Incorporated, is an existing business. You guys are already in in Flamborough, right? Correct. We are in uh, we're in the eighth concession, so we're out uh, out in Flamborough. We have an existing uh, thirty two thousand square foot facility. Uh, we're growing our cannabis aquaponically, a very organic, natural uh, uh, ecosystem, sustainable methodology uh, that seems to be lacking in this industry a little bit. But, uh, yeah, we're an existing company. We're selling uh, dried cannabis now to uh, medical patients, and uh, we are producing and selling uh, cannabis oil as well. So, yeah, we're, uh, we're uh, in the business. We're, we're looking to expand, and we need more growing capacity, which is why we, uh, why we purchased this building. How big, a, how big a plant do you need for something like this, Warren? You mentioned 32,000. This is about three times as large as the one you're currently owning in Flamborough right now. Is, is, is there a, a standard, an, an industry standard for how big a space you actually need? Well, no, the, the, it's, it's a business, business philosophy. It's your business modeling. This is kind of a, it's a new industry. So it's, uh, you're, you know, in this, this industry only going to be limited by your imagination on, on what's going to be coming down the line from, from Health Canada. So we, we uh, are under construction currently on our site now of an additional 240,000 square foot building, uh, which is uh, under construction. We're just starting uh, frost walls and foundations on that. Uh, this, uh, Stony Creek, because it's been, uh, it wasn't on our radar to, uh, to actually, uh, you know, buy this building. Uh, we saw the opportunity and, and took advantage of it as well, just to increase our canopy size. But, you know, right now we have only a few products that we can put out to the marketplace for, uh, for, for, uh, as a medicine, uh, cannabis as a, as a medicine. But, um, who knows what next year is going to bring or the year after once, uh, Health Canada allows, we'll say, the derivative market and other, uh, We'll say you know cosmetics or uh, or you know pet foods or whatever happens as a derivative to this uh, to the industry. You need to have the plants. You need to have the capacity to be able to grow. Uh, producing uh, cannabis oil, we need a lot of plants and a lot of, uh, of of cannabis flowers to produce oil. And so you need a lot of you need a lot of plants. So that's just our our. Uh, uh, it's our mo to kind of to, to get the to get an increase of our canopy size. By the way, that we had a story. I'm sure you heard this last week, Warren. But there's some concern raised in some circles that uh, that once uh, marijuana becomes legal uh, on, a, on a broader sense, of course, in October, 
that uh, that some companies set, they didn't mention yours specifically, but some companies that are currently in the production of medical marijuana may just abandon that and say, well, we're just going to sell recreational marijuana and start doing that now. But it sounds as if you guys are not only dedicated to this, but looking to expand your operation in that regard. That's correct. Well, there, we you know we see huge medicinal value in this plant. Uh, it's uh, you know for us, it's uh, if we can help people kind of get through the day. Uh, you know, cannabis isn't the cure all that you know. If you Google uh, the efficacy of uh, the cannabis plant and for you know medicinal ailments, uh, it says it'll cure everything. Well, we know that's not true. We know there's not enough science to back up the, those claims. Uh, but we are here to promote and create that science. We want to know. Uh, you know, anecdotally, uh, right now we know it's uh, effective for a lot of things, but uh, for us, it's a quality of life issue. If we can help somebody, you know, get through the day, get off opiates as a treatment for for pain or uh, or other ailments, then that's what we want to do. So we're very science focused. We're very uh, heavy into the medicinal value of uh, what this plant can do, uh, and uh, a lot of R and D. We're spending uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars annually on uh, on research. Uh, uh, for the medicinal value of the cannabis plant. Well, I, I hope people understand that there's a legitimacy to this, and, and, and I, I've been quite frank about it. I've learned a lot more about it in the last three or four years as well uh, for people that are dealing with chronic illnesses. And, and like you say, I mean, we have to connect the dots here. There's a there's an opioid crisis right now, and a lot of that, of course, is people's dependency on, on those sorts of drugs, and uh, this is an alternative uh, to try to get people off that or not on it in the first place. And and, and it's a legitimate industry. I mean, we need to, to put that right up front there. And a growing industry. Uh, I mean, obviously, you've just expanded here, Warren. I, we, I was just up in Collingwood o- over the weekend. There's a huge operation, apparently, that's being built right up there now. They're just uh, putting the, 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 the stuff, the, not even the finishing touches on this, but apparently it's going to be a rather huge operation as well. So this is, this is a growth industry right now, and apparently, you obviously, you're going to be hiring people and expanding your operation. Uh, absolutely, and that's that's a big a big part of it. You know, this this business is like any other business is going to be. This you know, this product is going to be a commodity. There's lots of people, as you mentioned, that are going to be focused on just dealing with the recreational side of the of the rec market, being wholesalers, uh, and and kind of getting the the product out there for uh, for uh, everyday use uh, on the rec side. But uh, you know, the 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 growth of the of the medicinal market, uh, all of these uh, all of these large uh, large operations that you're seeing coming up. It, you know, people realize that because this product is going to be commoditized, it's going to be about cost of goods. And, and you know, right now there's an undersupply and over-demand of the product, so the prices are up. But as the uh, years advance through this industry, we're going to see a, a reconciliation. We're going to see that, that, you know, supply and demand is going to be a big part of how the pricing is going to be set in this industry. And if you don't have the canopy size, if you're not growing the right number of plants and getting your costs down, uh, you're going to kind of be left in the dust, I think, in this industry. You're not going to be... Uh, standing when the dust settles, and uh, you know we plan to be one of the larger operations in Canada, and and uh, and the focus is uh, expanding our canopy right now, and then also you know having uh, having lines to to sell the product because obviously we have to uh, sell and, and be profitable uh, to 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 carry on. So there's there's lots of dimensions to to what you're saying. I want to uh, t- right I want to talk a little bit because you have a rather unique uh, business approach and you have a rather unique methodology to this. I want to talk about that in just a second, but but obviously one of the concerns and and I'm, you've heard this obviously from some of the groups uh, are those that are going to be displaced, those that are using that facility for soccer, for indoor soccer, especially in the in the bad winter months up here. And there was some concern, uh, and uh, apparently you've you've made some or taken some steps to try to to alleviate some of that concern. Well, we, we, you know, uh, uh, Greenleaf, I mean, it's our, our, uh, our philosophy. We're, we're here to help. I mean, we're, we're a Hamilton based company. We, we have uh, mandated ourselves to, to use 
uh, uh, all Hamilton labor, uh, Hamilton contractors, Hamilton engineers, uh, everybody. I'm a, I'm a third generation concrete contractor and my business and I spent uh, almost 20, you know, 27 years in Stony Creek in my office, uh, pouring concrete floors. So uh, I'm very focused in the, into Hamilton and, and we want to be, uh, we want to be part of the solution for, uh, the economics in, in Hamilton with, uh, with employment. And, uh, certainly we can, uh, help Stony Creek's and add, uh, probably about a hundred, hundred jobs, living wage jobs. We're talking about well-paid jobs, uh, you know, not minimum wage, uh, stuff, but all, and all ranges from, you know, people frontline production to the science side of it as well, uh, with the extraction methodology we're using and, uh, you know, there's no there's no end in sight for uh, for the uh, growth of, of, of where we're going to be going. The facility up here with uh, with our 240,000 square feet will be an additional 150 employees as well. So we are planning job fairs. We're planning on uh, on uh, seeing who's out there, who's interested in in a, in a career with Green Relief, and we're excited uh, for people to become part of our our, our bigger family. I, I got to ask you about how this is done, because uh, if we talk about an operation like this, Warren, a lot of folks are probably going to conjure up a picture in their mind of simply this huge, huge building with a whole bunch of plants there and uh, like a greenhouse and you have to water this. But but your your approach to this, uh, called aquaponics cannabis producer, uh, is rather unique. Maybe explain this, because this is, a, I think, a win-win situation in, in so many different ways. It's, it's the uh, so aquaponics is the most sustainable form of agriculture being used in the world today. So uh, aquaponics, just in, in in its nature, is a symbiotic relationship with fish, plants, and uh, and water uh, in a closed loop recirculating system. So I'm using 90% less water than any other form of agriculture out there. So it's just that the same water stays in the system. The same water can be in the uh, system for years. Uh, it's just like the same ecosystem, the same balance. Any freshwater lake. That you'd see lily pads growing or bulrushes, anything that grows in water is 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 fertilized by the aquaculture of the fish that are living in that water. So we've commercialized this system and made it scalable. So yeah, it's, uh, we're the only people in the world growing this way on a commercial level, uh, and uh, we're we're really excited. To, you know, people uh, basically laughed at us, uh, told us that it couldn't be done. We couldn't grow uh, cannabis aquaponically. Not enough nutrients in the water. The fish can't provide everything the plants need to, to grow. We'll say that the converted uh, fish waste, but uh, it it uh, nobody wanted to spend the time uh, and the resources uh, and kind of back it up by science. That no stocking densities and water flows and water temperatures and bacteria counts and all the things we need to make uh, aquaponics successful. And we figured it out. And so we're the world we're the world leaders. We're the only guys doing it. And uh, uh, there's a ton of. Uh, of, of, of byproducts through our, our process that are that are a benefit. The fact that we don't have to use pesticides, we don't have to use fertilizers, we don't have to use anything commercial. We have no input, so these are very naturally grown plants, and they're organic, as well as the fish that we uh, have in our system. We feed them organic fish food, so we have organic tilapia uh, as a byproduct of, of what we do as well. So uh, yeah, there's lots of there's huge benefits to, to growing this way, and and we're. Uh, uh, we're, we're promoting it actively uh, glo- on a global scale to uh, increase the use of aquaponics. But to, uh, to, absolutely. But that next step, though, is as these tilapia grow and as they get too large, uh, obviously you, you've got a plan for them as well. Well, yeah. So currently, we uh, we uh, out of our facility now, we have about five or six hundred pounds every five weeks of organic tilapia that we donate to uh, uh, through the Good Shepherd and uh, and uh, the Second Harvest. Uh, to a number of homeless shelters uh, across the GTA. So we're donating our fish uh, currently. 
uh, you know, with, and now uh, with Stony Creek and our second building here in, in Flamborough, you know, we're going to have another uh, 60, 70,000 fish uh, output annually. Uh, we have a, a greater uh, an abundance to, to feed more people, to uh, do more donations, uh, and, uh, and, just, and just help. Uh, listen, if we, can, we can help provide protein. To, to people who need it, and the, all of the shelters have the same complaint: is it's very, very difficult for them to get protein. Uh, uh, we, we've said from the beginning that that green relief is here to help. If we can help people with medicinal value of the cannabis plant, and we can feed people at the same time, well, that's just uh, we're just happy to be able to do that. Well, I've had these concerns and, and these conversations, frankly, with a number of the people that are running some of the food banks in some of these operations, such as you've referenced at Good Shepherd. And, and you're absolutely right. Their big concern is, well, how do we get fresh food? I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, you know, lots of people donate canned goods and peanut butter, but this is fresh fish. Uh, and this is, this is, this is just a, a great idea. Well, yeah, we're, we're very happy to do it. And it's unfortunate that the, uh, and, and I'm going to have to uh, make a call to the Good Shepherd in Hamilton because they're unable to take it because they don't have the people to uh, do the filleting. I, I don't want to be a fish processor, so I'm not, uh, I'm giving these fish uh, uh, whole. Uh, we're allowing the, uh, letting the, uh, the uh, uh, shelters uh, actually prepare the meals themselves. So, uh, if I, you know, if, if the Good Shepherd in Hamilton needs some people to, to lay fish, well, I'm happy to, uh, to get those on board and, and help uh, pay the cost of that as well. I'd like to see these things being used, and I'd like to see uh, uh, how many people we can help uh, uh, be part of that solution. So we'll uh, uh, more more talks and discussions to be had yet. Well, I'm sure that somebody listening to the show right now that might be able to help you out and help the Good Shepherd out in that regard and uh, be part of a, a fabulous program and a winning program. Uh, let's come back to the facility. And again, you mentioned when you're going to be moving in. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the, you'll strip this down. There's going to be a significant investment, I would think, of, of obviously materials into, into that building to get this up and ready. Absolutely. So we've uh, we've uh, initially remarked about uh, ten million dollars to retrofit costs uh, for the building. The, the Health Canada requirements uh, uh, are are very stringent on on uh, the facilities that we use for growing cannabis. They have to be clean uh, up to uh, a GPP or a good uh, good production practice uh, uh, level as far as uh, usability in the space. So we we are investing a lot of uh, a lot of dollars, and as I said, our, our contractor that we've been using, and I've known in the construction industry for years, Skillhouse uh, Construction, Skillhouse and Sons Construction, have been doing all of our uh, work on on site here, and they are going to be retrofitting uh, uh, the, the Stony Creek location as well. T Lloyd Electric, uh, another good Hamilton electrical company, uh, Besling Mechanical, all these uh, good solid people that I've known for for decades and worked with for a long period of time. Uh, are all going to be part of that uh, construction solution. We're we're estimating about three and a half months of construction. Uh, the first thing we have to do is unfortunately uh, take up that astroturf. And if anybody uh, needs a needs a home for uh, astroturf, let me know. <laughs> Reach out, please, because we have a lot of it to uh, to take out. We have four concrete floors. We've got some demolition in the existing offices. Uh, but you know, it's a three and a half to four month construction process. Then as the as we delineate our rooms in that open space with our freezer cooler panels to make growing rooms. We'll be installing all the aquaponics systems uh, commensurately at, 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 during the construction. So we want to get it up and running as quickly as possible. Obviously, it's a, it's a big financial commitment for uh, Green Relief as a startup. Uh, we're idea-rich and cash-poor, as we always, uh, as we always uh, are in this position. Uh, but uh, it's a substantial uh, cost, and, and we're uh, looking forward to, to bearing those expenses and, and increasing our canopy size. So, yeah, all good, good for Hamilton, good for good for employment, and uh, good for the trades for sure. 
you, you mentioned you're the only guys actually doing it on this scale, this aquaponic uh, methodology here right now. I, I got to think that this is going to become the template for anybody. As, I mean, this industry is going to grow. We all know that. But I, I got to figure a few people are going to come knocking on the door and saying, how do you guys do that? We'd like to see just how you do get this operation going. Well, there's there's a, a globally there's a ton of uh, excitement uh, now with people are reaching out and, and daily we're getting uh, we're getting email from uh, groups that are uh, excited about advancing that science of aquaponics and and uh, seeing if we're uh, we can help be part of that solution. Uh, and, you know, it's not just for cannabis, but but vegetable production. It's prolific for vegetables. Uh, just uh, actually purchased a farm uh, next door to us here in Flamborough, uh, where I plan on having a, a large uh, aquaponic vegetable production facility as well uh, for the uh, community. Um, so, uh, but, but, but daily we get requests in and, and, uh, you know, the uh, next week, uh, I'm, I'm in Fiji, Australia, uh, all for aquaponic business. Uh, we're in, you know, United States, uh, uh, we're Halifax, uh, we're, we're all over the place, uh, ex- expanding this, this technology. People, uh, see the value, uh, and, and if you're not latching on to sustainable agricultural techniques now, uh, you, I think you're going to be a dinosaur because, you know, uh, source water, groundwater, uh, just water in general, I think is going to be, uh, you know, traded on a commodities index in the next number. And if you're not being, uh, using those resources wisely. Well, it's cutting edge to be sure. And, uh, and it's happening right here in our backyard and it's expanding right here in our backyard as well. Uh, exciting times. Warren, thank you so much for taking the time with it. And, uh, and, uh, by way of explanation, uh, showing our listeners exactly what's going to be going on there. Really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity, Bill. It was a pleasure talking to you. Take care. That's uh, Warren Bravo, the CEO for Green Relief Incorporated. And uh, just a fascinating operation. And, and anybody, of course, involved in agriculture, growing anything, will tell you that one of the big concerns there is water and how much water it takes to do this. 95% less water used in this operation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Ford government announced that they were going to kill the green energy program here in the province of Ontario. That that was something they did just after the election. Uh, and, and, of course, the wind farms and a number of other things were going to be impacted. One of the offshoots of that, though, uh, were the rebates that were being offered uh, by the, the wind government previously with the legislation uh, for people that purchased electric cars. And uh, I remember at the time when they made the announcement, I talked about how you know wrong-headed that may have been. Uh, but it was in play, and I guess a lot of folks took them up on this. Well, when they announced that they were going to kill the program, they did say, look, it, if you've already ordered the car and it's take, you're taking delivery uh, you c- from the dealership, that is, uh, you could still get your rebate money from this. But uh, Tesla put their hand up and said, whoa, 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 wait, we don't have dealerships. You have to order directly from Tesla for these sorts of things. So they said, well, sorry, you don't qualify. Well, Tesla took them to court, and apparently the court has ruled in favor of Tesla and against the Ontario government over these electric vehicle rebates. Uh, the government's not quite sure how they're going to respond to this uh, judicial decision at this stage, whether they can appeal it or whatever the avenues are. But uh, it's caused a great deal of, uh, well, consternation, I guess, uh, with everybody who's in the auto industry right now, and certainly people that are potential buyers. I want to bring uh, David Adams into the conversation, president of Global Automakers of Canada, and uh, get his read on this. David, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. No, thanks for having me, Bill. Are you uh, surprised by the court decision, first of all? Um, a little bit, I suppose. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, I, I think uh, Tesla must have put a compelling case together. And, um, you know, we are where we are at this point. I think the, uh, the next steps are going to be um, perhaps the most interesting in terms of where do we go from here in terms of putting another uh, sort of transition plan in place to um, ensure that... Uh, 
uh, you know, I guess all folks that ordered vehicles um, can secure the rebate on those vehicles. Well, and, and again, yeah, we're, we're getting into the legalities of this, and, and, you know, that's what the lawyers do, obviously. Uh, but, but it just seemed to me, as much as I didn't think the idea of the rebates was a very good idea in the first place, uh, I, I didn't think the government could actually be discriminatory and say, look, if you can afford a Tesla, then, you know, and that seemed to be the attitude, although it wasn't stated. So I, I don't know where they're going to go on this, but uh, it's, I, I guess the people I feel the sorest for in this situation like this, David, are the customers, because they're not quite sure where they stand, whether or not they get or get the rebate or whether or not it's uh, worth canceling their order. I mean, especially the Tesla customers. There were, apparently, I heard about 500 people that had ordered cars as a result of this potential program. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the exact number for Tesla members, or Tesla rather. Um, they're not a, a member company of our association, but, um, you know, we've been trying to gauge how many of um, our own member company uh, consumers would be, uh, you know, caught in a situation where they potentially couldn't have their vehicle delivered by the September 10th deadline that was um, was outlined uh, as part of the transition away from the rebate program. It, was that a realistic deadline to, to get delivery on something like that? Um, I think it probably depends a little bit on the manufacturer. Yeah. Um, certainly, uh, you know, if you're perhaps General Motors or maybe Nissan, where the vehicles are produced in North America, the, um, you know, the logistics of getting the vehicle into the Ontario market are a little bit um, perhaps more predictable than trying to get uh, vehicles from Korea or, or Japan or what have you. Um, and I think that's uh, that's part of the challenge is everybody is in a slightly different position with uh, slightly different production capabilities. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, an electric vehicle is like um, any uh, sort of niche vehicles that, um, uh, you know, uh, a lot of them end up being factory ordered. And sometimes a factory order can take... Uh, uh, not only a number of weeks, but you know, a number of months potentially as well. When that announcement was made, and I want to go back to the previous government, if I could, David, uh, without getting into the politics of it, but the fact is it was there. Uh, how does that impact the industry? How does that impact automakers? Do they say, oh, man, we're going to get a flood of orders now. We better gear up here. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is part of the challenge around any... Um, uh, I guess you could look at it <laughs> in one way as positive interference in the market, but as nonetheless interference in the market by putting an incentive in place um, because it does, uh, you know, distort the market. I think the, um, you know, from the automaker's perspective, there's probably a necessity for incentives in the marketplace to reduce the price gap between, um, you know, regular internal combustion engine vehicle and electric vehicle. Um, those incentives don't need to be in place forever, but, uh you know, without the incentive, it's hard to um, hard to convince consumers to purchase the vehicles. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the evidence is in the numbers themselves. Um, last year, uh, you know, for the first time, we saw Ontario actually sell more electric vehicles than Quebec, and you know, it, it's not rocket science to see that the um, the vehicle incentive had a lot to do with that being, um, you know, uh, basically about twice as generous almost as the incentive in Quebec. But do you see that market share growing? In terms of EVs overall? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it, uh, you know, if you look at it on a year-over-year basis, it's growing, you know, uh, by leaps and bounds, but you're you're also growing that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, number from a, a small base. So, you know, it's got some um, provinces, Quebec and B.C., I think, as well, where they're maybe at sort of 2 or potentially 3% market share right now, but across uh, Canada, generally, it's still around, you know, 1% of overall uh, vehicle sales. 
The reason I'm asking is because time and time again, when I talk to consumers about this, they they just seem skeptical that that this is the future, electric vehicles. And 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 I want to get your read on that because I mean, obviously, there's the, as you mentioned, there's the combustion engine. Uh, there's, I guess, the middle ground, I guess we could describe it as the hybrid engine, uh, which I think a lot more people seem to be gravitating towards. I'm not so sure that they're ready to, to go all the way to the other end and simply say, okay, it's going to be totally electric. Yeah, well, I think if you look at uh, manufacturers' offerings, as you say, they cover the, the spectrum out there right now. You've got, uh, you know, um, increasingly efficient internal combustion engine vehicles, and I think that's part of the challenge, too, with alternative technology uptake when you can get... Um, uh, you know, your regular internal combustion engine vehicle that's getting, you know, 45, uh, uh, 50 kilometers, uh, you know, or, or 50 miles per gallon, rather. Um, you know, that, that tends to be pretty compelling uh, when you start looking at um, alternative technology. But, you know, if you look at the spectrum of vehicles that are being offered right now, as you say, you've got conventional hybrids that um, provide a high degree of fuel efficiency. Uh, you have the, the plug-in hybrid um, that you know maybe combines the best of both worlds where you can uh, plug it in and maybe use the, the electric uh, energy in the vehicle for most of your driving but you have the um, you know the uh, assurance I guess that you're not going to get stranded by having a backup of the the gasoline engine and then you have the, the pure battery electric vehicle and you know maybe perhaps those are more suited at the present time for um, you know basically the urban uh, commuter but um, I think as battery technology improves and uh, becomes cheaper, um, you start to see, and we've already seen that in the second generation of electric vehicles, where the the range for these vehicles has increased substantially. And I think uh, you know the higher the range, um, you know the more comfort uh, people have that they're not going to be uh, be stranded in these vehicles. But I think that you know it's also an, important to uh, to underscore the need for appropriate charging infrastructure as well. Yeah, and, and I mean, we've seen that evidence. So, you know, it's, they're starting to pop up in place to place. But you're right. I understand a certain amount of trepidation from a lot of folks that say, look, we drive a lot more in this country and we drive longer distances. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. uh, and, and as a result, they figure, you know, that two-hour drive up to Muskoka is, is one thing. I don't want to have to make it a four-hour drive because I have to stop halfway and charge. Uh, and I don't know that we're there yet. We haven't, we haven't overcome that yet, have we? Well, and I, you know, I think this is uh, part of the, um, you know, at least the perceived barriers to adopting new technology, and a lot of it comes down to education at the end of the day, and, um, you know, it's a lot of people that have, uh, you know, a, a skin in that game as well. Part of the responsibility is the automakers themselves. I think part of the of the responsibility for education is also on uh, the policymakers that would you know, potentially like uh, the populace to move in this direction. And, um, you know, there's probably others that uh, are involved, whether they're the uh, CAAs or, uh, you know, those types of folks as well, um, just to educate consumers about the, um, you know, the realities and the myths of what the, the technology is all about. And, uh, you know, also the, the cost savings that can accrue by adopting um, electric vehicle technology as well. But from a, a marketing standpoint, though, I, I'm interested to get your read on that, David. I mean, if a government such as the last one tries to basically tell consumers what they should be doing and what they should be buying and incentivize them to try to move along that direction, uh, do, do we follow or, or, or is there usually a pushback? I mean, uh, a lot of the people I know are pretty discerning customers and they say, look, that may be where you guys want to go, but I'm, I'm happy with what I've got and I'm not really willing to move yet. <laughs> 
Sure, and we sort of see that in the, in the sales statistics right now. And, uh, you know, uh, currently most of the electric vehicles that are on offer are, uh, you know, tend to be sort of smaller um, to midsize uh, sedans. And then you look at where the, um, the overall market is in, in Canada and the United States as well. It's uh, largely moved to, you know, trucks essentially, pickup trucks, SUVs, that type of thing. So, um, you know, the, the current product offerings are not necessarily in, um, you know, in the same wheelhouse as what, as you say, what consumers are interested in purchasing. You know, I think from the automaker's perspective, um, you know, we're of, of the view that you just espoused that, you know, we're not asking for governments to prescribe any particular technology. Um, if they're looking for greenhouse gas emissions reductions or, you know, the proxy for that would be, you know, lower fuel consumption, then, um, you know, set a goal in terms of what you want to achieve and let manufacturers figure out, you know, how they're going to reach that goal, whether it's by, um, you know, more efficient uh, conventional vehicles or uh, deploying electric vehicles or what have you. But did you guys see that coming? I mean, you know, when, when the, the auto industry rebounded after the recession around 09 and, and 10, I guess, and when sales started to pick up, I, I think a lot of people were surprised about the fact that we as consumers started buying larger vehicles. Uh, I mean, you know, the fuel efficiency and everything else, but there have been, a, I think, a number of different advancements, of course, in, in that technology. And and as you say, I mean, you know, for every 10 vehicles that you see on the road these days, probably eight of them are either a, a pickup truck or an SUV. We're not we're not buying small vehicles to the extent that maybe some people thought we might. Well, that's right, and I think the other um, the other issue that sometimes gets uh, lost here is that um, you know over the course of the last decade or so, um, you know, we've had the whole evolution of the crossover vehicle. So it's got you know car-like attributes, but you know maybe looks like a truck, and you know certainly from um, the technical aspect of how vehicles are classified for the purposes of the greenhouse gas emission standards uh, regulations. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, something that looks like a, a truck may actually be classified as a car and vice versa. So it, it gets very technical very quickly. Um, but, I mean, I think um, you, at the end of the day, any new vehicle is going to be much more fuel efficient than any old vehicle. And, you know, that's part and parcel of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions regulations that have been in place since 2011 in Canada and 2012 in the United States. And those are the uh, same sort of greenhouse gas standards that are currently being um, discussed stateside and in Canada in terms of whether they're appropriate, uh, you know, as we move forward towards 2025. But the market's really going to dictate that, isn't it? I mean, you know, I understand that, you know, as you've mentioned, every time governments try to impose ideas like this, or even, you know, if an auto company decided to do that themselves, uh, the, the the consumer themselves are going to make that decision. I mean, the, you know, the idea of an incentive here to buy a, a, a Chevy Volt or something may swing one person one way as, as to the other, but if they want them to buy themselves a, a larger vehicle, which we tend to want to do these days, uh, you're going to move away from that no matter what the incentive is. Well, yeah, and I think that's um, that's always the challenge in terms of, uh, you know, the manufacturers are, are pretty consistent about one thing, and that's, you know, building vehicles to meet consumer demand. And I think um, that's why in the U.S. regulations, there was something called the midterm review that was put in place to basically um, look at those questions that you just raised in terms of, you know, when we developed these regulations, uh, you know, seven or eight years ago, um, 
did they contemplate or do we contemplate at that time consumers buying patterns uh the same way they've actually turned out uh you know in the interim and uh, there's lots of other questions like that where it's really a time for sort of sober second thought to see whether or not the um the regulations as they were originally designed are still applicable given all of the variables in the marketplace right now very quickly, with this technology, and, and as you say, I mean, aside from Tesla, I mean, people tend to think in in their mind's eye when you start talking about electric cars, as as you already alluded to, David, smaller vehicles. Is that tra- technology transferable to larger vehicles, to to trucks and SUVs, so that you know we could we could maybe you know get the best of both worlds? Well, you're you're starting to see that uh, that transition occur. There are you know at least two or three vehicles in the Canadian marketplace that are uh, you know SUVs that would be um, plug-in uh, hybrid electric vehicles. Um, I don't think there's any fully uh, battery electric vehicle in the SUV or pickup uh, area right at the moment. And you know that's always the challenge is that batteries take up a still take up a substantial um, size uh, footprint in the vehicle. So until the um, you know, the batteries can become uh, more efficient and uh, you know, a smaller footprint in the overall space they take up in the vehicle and the power that they can provide, uh, you know, to customers that, you know, if they're going to buy a pickup truck, they want to be able to use that pickup truck for at least the, the usual things that, um, you know, uh, pickup truck owners would sure. uh, would want uh, towing a you know a, a trailer or a boat that type of thing. So um, certainly the technology is maybe a bit of a way to go before we see those vehicles, but um, I think we'll see them eventually. David Adams, uh, president of Global Automakers uh, of Canada. David, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate take, it. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.